Welcome to the Broken Pie Chart Podcast, episode 216. I think it's 216. I'm your host, Derek Moore, and with me once again is my semi-permanent co-host, CEO of Zega Financial, Jay Pastorcelli. Jay, how are you doing today? Doing well, Derek. How are you? 216? Man, it seems like every time I'm on with you, just the number goes up. Oh, oh, that's how it works, isn't it? That's how it works. It's kind of like inflation, Jay. It never goes down, never goes back to the previous level. It only sort of goes up over time, much like the podcast count. But Jay, you know what went up today? Some of the banks. Bank earnings. Yeah, Jay, you and I always talk about how, in the end, a lot of the market comes down to what are the earnings, what do people expect the earnings to be, and I think some of the banks outperform, they outkick their coverage, wouldn't you say, Jay? I mean, yeah, when you look at the uh, the performance of the the financial ETFs today, they were up notably, probably the biggest winners on my chart and uh, on my list of uh, uh, of ETF sectors that I watch. And I think there was a lot of expectation that, you know, with the bank situation, I'm not going to call it a crisis, I'll call it a situation uh, that that may be going on. It looks like the big banks were fine with it. There was apparently not as much concern about uh, reserves and balance sheets. So, you know, you had a good day today. I think today, what did we have? Wells Fargo, JP Morgan, City. So we had a lot. And by the time this comes out, Bank of America will have reported as well, a handful of others. So, yeah, the big ones are all kind of out. And so far, looks uh, like the potential fear that we saw three or four weeks ago um, might not be affecting the larger banks. I mean, it seems like it. I wonder how much of this, Jay, is the zero-sumness of the banking industry, where did they take in, in Q1 from the smaller banks? Like, is this, they're, they're, uh, they're, they're sort of like the tiger in the, in the National Geographic episode where it's just eating stuff all over the place. You know what I mean? Like, is this zero-sum game? I don't know. Where is he going with that? I, actually, I don't know if deposits were necessarily up, but earnings were, right? Uh, we could dig into each one of those if we had to to figure out the, if, you know, I think you're talking about deposits, right? So, where the small to mid-sized banks are, would lose accounts, though that money has to land somewhere. You would assume it lands at, you know, the J.P. Morgans and Wells Fargo's of the world, right? Uh, but I don't, I don't think deposits are necessarily up yet. And and when you think about why the money was leaving those smaller banks, right? Why why money was flowing out? It wasn't. Uh, I mean, certainly fear. But the first thing that's the catalyst was that you could put your money. Uh, somewhere else and earn four to five percent in you know short-term bonds versus leaving it earning zero in your bank account. And I don't know about you, but my big bank that I use is still paying me virtually nothing for cash despite rates being where they are. So I'm not sure that they are the place to go if you pulled your money for higher yield. If you pulled your money for safety, then absolutely, I would agree. You know, at the same time, so the the Fed has. So there's the discount window. That's where the banks can knock on the door of the Fed, you know, the theoretical window. I guess, Do you think maybe at one point the, during the horse and carriage stage, people would take the horse-drawn carriage to the Fed in lower Manhattan and knock on, you know, go up to the window and be like, hey, we need a loan? Do you think that's why they call it that? When you go up to the bank, it's a window. Even when you're in the bank, they call it the, right, you go to the next window, right? I mean, it's the big glass. That's true. Thing. 
I don't know why they call it the window, but it's really not a window, but maybe it is because who knows? I don't know why they call it the window, Derek. We'll find somebody that can. That was in a Die Hard movie too. Wasn't the Fed in Lower Manhattan that was in, was it Die Hard 3? Weren't they breaking into the Fed? Yeah, that's right. They're stealing all the gold. All right. So the between borrowing at the Fed discount window and then the bank term funding program, BTFP, what the heck is that? That's what you heard on the news where the banks were had all these bonds that were holding to maturity and uh, they had losses on those. And that's the program where they essentially can exchange those for par value, meaning not the market value today, but what they would you know, mature at. And the Fed would loan them money. And Jay, I mean, over the last, let's say one, two, three, like five weeks, I would say a lot of banks are pulling pretty good money from those facilities. And a lot of times, you know, banks don't necessarily want to go to the discount window because it quote unquote is a sign of weakness. And we did see some discount window usage. I think on this podcast, Jay, I'd said at the time, I don't know what it means, but it means something and we'll know when we know, but we know what it is now. So <laughs> you, you have been talking about it for a few weeks. Yep, that's true. So I guess we're just going to have to see. Now, just because a bank uses that facility doesn't mean that they're in trouble. I mean, it might just free up their balance sheet, but um, I, I just, it's worth mentioning that the usage is still pretty high compared to what it normally is, right? Yeah, I mean, and so the what the indication here is that maybe not everybody's in the clear here. Um, and I think if you watched, uh, if you saw the Warren Buffett interview uh, that was on CNBC sometime last week, by the time you hear this, um, he would tell you that there was a lot of mismanagement within the banks. He thinks depositors are fine, uh, but there's a lot of mismanagement. And I think maybe that is a reflection of that, that the books have been mismanaged. And, uh, you know, it's it's that ends up being a little bit of the get out of jail card for, you know, bad decisions on the way you build your 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 income, uh, your income portfolio at a bank. So, like, look, it's it's um, it's clearly I mean, people can't see this. Right. But my, my point is, like, when you compare this to, say, the uh, period of early 2020, right, where you'd think that people would, you know, institutions would need assistance by going to the discount window. Uh, I mean, we're like four times that usage right now uh, in the last four or five weeks. So, I mean, just if you you put this on par with um, what's happening today uh, versus what happened when we had that, you know, very quick and rapid recession in 2020, um, you, you, you know, you would think this looks worse from a, from a perspective of, you know, in, uh, institutions having to go to the window for, to, you know, to get, I'm going to say bailed out. That's not the right term, but it's like, so, you know, it would be helpful, Derek, because as I'm stammering through this for you to explain, like really what happens here, right? Like you show up at the window, you say, please take my bonds, uh, give me par and I'll pay you a little loan rate until, you know, they're done. Is that the basic gist of it? For for that, uh, discount window is a little different. Discount window is just if you want to take a loan from the Fed versus taking a loan from a, another member bank. That's just, and you pay a rate and the discount window fee is somewhere around, well, I'll ballpark it around 5%. I didn't look today. That other facility is where they take that collateral, they walk it over the, the stack of paper and bonds, and they walk it over to the Fed and they say, 
okay, here's these bonds. Here's a, here's a million dollars worth of bonds, but they're only worth 900000 today because as interest rates go up, bond prices go down. Give us a loan for the full million, charge us an interest rate, and here's these bonds. You put them on, their, on your balance sheet. So that's kind of how that works, Jay. Thank you for the clarification, Derek. Try to make it simple. Um, but, you know, back to the, I do want to talk about the Fed, our friends at the Fed, I'll say. But I think the, the earnings on Friday, they came out as the most recent Friday, and you, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, they were good. They were better than expected. And just to give you an idea of, of the difference that will make, uh, Refinitiv uh, puts out a, an earnings scorecard every week, and it, they use IBE's uh, data. And April 1st, the expectations for Q1 earnings was negative 5.1% year over year. Now, between the companies that have reported, and there's not that many yet, and the ones expect, you know, yet to report, uh, the loss narrowed to minus 4.8%. So just from the companies today, the actuals, and what's remaining, which is, uh, let me just, I can tell you, there's 470 companies remaining, only 30 have reported. The, the loss, the year-over-year decline is narrowing from that. So, Jay, I think that was, you know, sometimes people are like, hey, is there any good news? Yeah, I think, I think that was good news. So the, the loss is a little less bad. Is that the good news you're going to share with us? Well, it is. It is. I mean, they, they look, JP Morgan, the analysts didn't get that right and didn't get it right nope. in a good way because they beat earnings. Yeah. Good for them. Yeah. Good for so, them. So speaking of the Fed, the other thing is, Jay, you and I both look at the, the meeting probabilities. Uh, we look at that. Um, let, let me talk quickly about the Fed. And then I, I do want to talk about this debt ceiling because I, I think is nobody talking about that and they should, but first the Fed, we look at the probabilities and the probabilities based upon the Fed funds future. So the Fed funds futures are contracts that trade in all these different months going out from this month all the way out a few years. And the price that they trade at implies what the, the rate will be. So if you take 100 minus the, the price of that futures contract, it tells us or implies what the Fed funds rate is. Jay, the implied rate for the, the May 3rd meeting is, you know, 83.2% probability that rates will go from 475 to 5 up to, so a rise of 25 basis points to 5, 5 and a quarter. But Jay, what's interesting is uh, just looking at this, I know you spent some time researching this this morning. The probabilities say it's one and then we're done, right? There's very few, there's a very low probability at this point that we see a second raise after this one in May that has a high probability, right? So it looks like we're finally at the stage where we could say one and done, but it's really one more, right, and done because they've done plenty. Uh, right, the probability, the most likely outcome uh, for the June meeting is that they don't raise, and that is also the most likely outcome for the July, although the July 26th uh, uh, meeting looks like it starts to get a chance in there that they may cut. But still, the most likely outcome is still holding tight at that five to five and a quarter, which is 25 basis points higher than today. So, yeah, I mean, Derek, there's definitely a little shift here where, you know, the uh, the market is 
staying higher, but not for that much longer, right? So uh, the decline then really starts to kick in that the most probable outcome is a cut in November, another cut in December, and then another cut, uh, you know, eventually in March of 2024. So, you know, the market is saying a year from now, uh, year from now, we'll be 100 basis points lower than where we are today, but we still have one more raise to go. So I, it's interesting to see where the market has their, 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 uh, has the money bet, right? Like I always like to use real prices in the market because that's where real money is. Uh, that's where the, the real money has been placed. And, you know, this might be it for me. But by the way, I don't think you and I would disagree with, right? Like, I think you and I have been saying the impact of the Fed has already been in there. They could really, they could, you know, hey, guys, you've, you've done the job, right? You're, you're kind of done at this point. There's no harm in slowing it down. Could always start up again. Yeah, I mean, and you and I would both agree that the Fed never even had to raise rates at all. And I, I shouldn't say at all, but like, the inflation was not caused by the Fed. I'm sorry. Inflation was caused by the fiscal policy sending out massive amounts of money into the economy and supply chain. And when you have supply chain problems and then you throw money out into the economy at the very point where people can't get stuff. But I digress, Jay. And I will re remind people that, you know, we were on air probably a year ago. And the Fed funds probability said that rates wouldn't get north of 3%. And so I think you rightly point out, this is what the market right now, what they are saying by their actions, by buying and selling futures contracts, of what the market implies what rates will be. Uh, but the market's been wrong before, Jay. We'll see if they're wrong this time or not. I mean, they've been wrong for a lot uh, with this current cycle that we're in, right? So you're right. We shall see. We shall see. Look, this is a it's a reaction to news too, right? It's trading, it's active, it's futures trading. Like, it's it's certainly not the end all be all. You, I mean, why not listen to what the Fed is saying themselves, right? And they tell you what they intend to do. Well, isn't that how banks got in trouble though? Like two years ago, if if you know, or a year and a half ago, if you said, "Well, I'll listen to the Fed." And the Fed saying, no, it's it's temporary inflation. No, no problem. We're still buying mortgage-backed securities. We're still buying treasuries every month. We have no plans of raising rates. So like, if you're running the bank book, wouldn't you be like, okay, well, the Fed's telling me they're not going to raise. I'll just buy these 10-year maturities at 1%. All good, right? Come on. Yes, fine. <laughs> I guess so. You take it with a, with a grain of salt. By the way, speaking of uh, Fed speakers, Fed Governor Chris Waller was quoted saying, because financial conditions have not significantly tightened, the labor market continues to be strong and quite tight, and inflation is far above target. So monetary policy needs to be tightened further. Jamie Dimon, I don't know if he said this on the earnings call, but I saw this online, and everything is true online, Jay, as we know. Uh, he says people need to be prepared for the potential of higher rates for longer. If and when that happens, it will undress problems in the economy for those who are exposed to floating rates. So, I mean, it's possible that they're done next month, and then who's to say they have to lower? I mean, if the economy is doing well, I suppose there's no reason to lower. Fed's Waller is saying, but look, I mean, the Fed at Jay all along has said, no, no, no. I mean, even Powell said, we're not cutting. He was a little bit turt or 
terse, I guess. Is that a word? Abrupt with that reporter who said, we're not cutting. Yeah. So yeah. this is what people are saying. We'll see what happens though, right? You know, and, and just if I could maybe digress a little on, on rates here, you know, when you think about the impact that the Fed has, right? I've, I've, we've talked a lot about it. And the first thing that they impact usually is the housing and real estate market because they dramatically impact mortgage rates. And we saw that when they cut rates in 2020. And we see that now when they raise rates uh, in 2022 and 2023, how they are, you know, slowing down that uh, that sector of the market. Right. We, I would definitely say, you know, there is a recession going on in that section, uh, that, that portion of the market. But, you know, what I hadn't thought about as deeply and, and uh, maybe, you know, when I think about really how they can impact, you know, the end consumer, what Jamie Dimon is talking about there, about uh, those who are exposed to floating rates, you can include credit cards in that conversation, can't you? Right. Because credit cards will adjust rates uh, based on uh, underlying uh, whatever, however they're I forget. They all kind of use a little different process there. But um, if you have credit card debt, this ends up being, uh, you know, a way of of really stemming your spending habits, at least if you're doing it uh, on borrowed money. Right. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Let's let's touch on this now because we had this plan later, but I think it's appropriate now. And then we'll go, I want to talk about the debt ceiling. I want to talk about the the three-month, 10-year inversion. But Jay, credit card interest rates, uh, this is a, a chart from Charlie Bellello on Twitter. Uh, and he said 20.09% is the US average credit card interest rate. Wow, that's high. Um, 20%. He points out that March, yeah, 20.09%. March of 2022 was 145 Six percent. The lows were around eleven point eight percent. You know, going back, uh, I, the scale is a little bit tough to see on this, but you know, call it twenty thirteen ish, somewhere around there. But I think even I mean, farther Jay, back, right? Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's 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 pretty high. I mean, you go back to second quarter of two thousand, and maybe it's you know. 16 and a half percent, something like that. Jay, this is really high. Like, I, I think you're right to bring this up. So this constrains spending, right? And it, it causes people to get to the ceiling. It has to, right? At some point, and look, there's going to be plenty of people that this, that fall under this, right? And this, this, you know, I always say this is the worst debt to carry, which is credit card debt, right? I mean, it's, uh, uh, I mean, it's just difficult to get out from under a 20% rate when you're trying to pay off credit cards. So yeah, I mean, this is high and this, this may impact the consumer more than, uh, you know, than previously discussed because, you know, once you've gone through, you know, the money supply, the banking balances, you're doing it on credit cards. And if you're not paying them off, it will force you to stop spending because you'll be paying financial institutions. I'm just thinking out loud, but isn't like, if you have a balance and you're paying 20%, and and that's compounding. So obviously, if you're if you're only paying the interest, that interest, you know, you never really attack the debt. But like, if you have uh, money on a credit card paying twenty percent, is it fair to say that if if you pay that off, you get like a twenty percent return? I guess it doesn't work exactly like that, but it's kind of like that, right? I mean, you you say you yeah, it's it's we've 
we've heard that, that argument, right? The greatest way to give yourself a raise is pay off whatever is costing you monthly payments, right? And you've just, if it was costing you 5,000 a month and a credit card payment, you don't, and you pay it off and you no longer have it, you have 5,000 extra in your pocket each month. It's having the money to pay it off. That's the hard part. And in the past, there was the argument, well, could you do better investing or doing something else with that money um, and make more than, you know, the, than you would, uh, then you'd be paying interest on that might make sense. But at 20%, it's hard to find stuff that's going to yield you a return greater than 20% in this environment. I think one of the issues too, and then we'll move on from this is it, it does cause people to go up against the, the available credit faster. And for the people who most need to tap credit cards to cover daily expenses, if that line of credit is not available, you know, it starts to be not a great situation. So, but yeah, I agree. Credit card debt is not great. And, and, if, and balances are kind of on the rise, right? Credit card balances, another kind of revolving uh, debt is starting to approach. Like I'm looking at a chart you provided me like approaching a trillion dollars, right? The high. Yeah, this is consumer loans, credit cards, and other revolving plans, all commercial banks, Jay. Yeah, coming up on a trillion dollars. Yeah, I mean, as, as, a, as, a, as a reference, uh, you know, pre-2020, that number was around 850, 850 billion, right? So we are well past that. Um, so we have more debt now than, you know, 2020. Um, you could look at... Um, you know, you go back on this chart and it's it's one of those things that it's definitely going up and to the right. Um, but, you know, so you got the highest rate that we've had on on, you know, on record. And now you've got this highest balance. You know, it's I feel like we should buy the credit card companies at this point, Derek. Like, I feel like MasterCard, Visa and Amex. Not a recommendation, Jay. That's why we <laughs> buy the whole market. We hedge. Oh, right. right, Yeah. No, individual stocks are really tough. We should do an episode once we just explain how difficult it is to do individual stocks. By the way, if you want to know all of our success stories on picking individual stocks. (laughs) If anybody wants to know how we invest, by the way, and and, uh, how we run portfolios, Derek.more at zegafinancial.com. That's D-E-R-E-K dot M-O-O-R-E at Z as in zebra, E as in Eddie, G as in George, A as in Apple. Financial's up to you to spell correctly. Jay, it is interesting too that with all the the stimulus, that fiscal money that I talked about, uh, this went from about, I'm ballpark at 850 down to 750 billion. So people use that money to pay off debt, but now we're at high amounts of debt. Yeah. And now not so good. Not so good. All right. Well, speaking of debt, uh, the debt ceiling, Jay. And so to set the stage for this, I'll do this really briefly. The U.S. has a debt ceiling. And that means that there's, there's a law that was passed at some point, and the law was designed to, to stop excessive spending and stop spending more money than we, than we have each year. And every year we do that. Well, I shouldn't say we, it's politicians who do this in Washington, D.C. And what happens is every once in a while – our debt gets up to that ceiling. And what typically happens is one party does, you know, they, they argue about it. They, and, and by the way, Jay, if you ever want to see how shallow politicians are, you go and you look and you see what one party says about the debt ceiling when the other party's in power 
and then you flip it. They say exactly the different, exactly different things depending upon who's in the White House. It is uncanny. And politicians. What you think politicians aren't, aren't always honest and genuine? I mean, if you the the hypocrisy. Not, and, is that what you're saying, Darren? Sorry. Yeah, it's Friday. I'm a little punchier. I mean, I know both the of hypocrisy us. of politicians couldn't be further displayed than when you deal with the debt ceiling. So anyway, um, they they're coming up against the debt ceiling again. This part of me says that the market. I have two things on this. First says, I don't think we're hearing enough about this because in the past we've seen some volatility. When you start to get up to that period where they have to do something or quote unquote. The other part of me says that a lot of the hysterics on this are not correct. And there's different levers and things like that. But Jay, is this like, why are we hearing more about the debt ceiling? Is it, it's August that uh, in theory they'll run out of money, right? Yeah. Uh, so the, it is, it's a little ways away. It's uh, I think it's going to be used as political ammunition. Like you said, when it's appropriate, this seems a little early for that. Um, listen, we we there's, you know, a lot of folks talking about like the debt ceiling helps us make our payments on, you know, spending we've already committed to, right? It doesn't mean new spending; it's stuff we've already voted on and approved. But uh, look, Derek, it's 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 not the most important thing spooking the market right now, right? Like. You and I both have talked about how there's plenty of media outlets that will focus on the thing that gives you, you know, gets the most eyeballs and most ears uh, paying attention to what they're saying. And right now, this seems so far away. And I don't, you know, is it, I know that it'll get spun as this time is different. Will it really be? We don't know. I think you and I would probably say probably not different. This will probably get resolved. But, you know, I think that's generally the, the gist. There's a little bit of you know, weariness around this topic. I just, it's not interesting yet. You know, it'll matter when it matters. It doesn't matter yet. I always give the the Greece example. Do you remember when Greece, I forget what year, Michelle Caruso Cabrera was still at CNBC. So it, it probably was 2015, maybe 2016, where she'd be outside, you know, the Pantheon in Greece doing the live shot. And that was the big thing. Greece was going to default on their debt. You know, Greece's debt to GDP today, or in 2022, was 252% debt to the GDP. That is way higher, way higher than it was back in, let's say, 2014, when it was still really high, but it was 189%. My point of this is Greece, from a debt to GDP standpoint, is in much worse shape today than they were back then. But I don't know about you, Jay, but I have not seen one person talk about this, the, the Greek debt to GDP, much less do live shots daily from Greece. It matters when it matters. To your point, Jay, it, right now, this doesn't matter. And, you know, the debt, to, the debt ceiling doesn't sound like it matters to the market yet, right? Not yet, but it will. It will. It'll definitely uh, uh, start to... Uh uh, get get some some time and attention and like let's uh, let's 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 talk this out a little bit right if if we're gonna so what what will happen when it does matter right we've had some times in the past where the U.S. debt was I guess well sometimes one time in the past the U.S. debt was downgraded um, and what does that do when a bond is downgraded Derek what typically happens well what typically happens is 
the bond price go down, it goes down and yields go up. And uh, the rate goes up. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, is that what we're going to expect as we're coming into, uh, you know, July, right? June, July. Do we expect rates to go up because of fear about, you know, the, the viability, uh, uh, the credit worthiness of U.S. debt? Could be. And what would what would drive that? Right. You'd get folks selling bonds out of worry that, uh, you know, that they, you know, they won't be repaid. Right. That there'll be a problem, that there'll be a default on their debt or the value will just drop and you don't feel like writing that. Right. If you don't want to ride through that. But I don't know. We should you know, when you look at the Fed funds futures, I was just as we just talked about, there's no hint that, you know, rates are going to go up during that time. But again, that's it's a market price versus the uh, um, uh, versus the Fed rate. But my point is, you know, if we want to know what it looks like, if this was really going to matter, it's a significant, it's a drop in the value of the of bonds, which is a push to higher yields. Yeah, I mean, I will say that after that downgrade, so I think it was Moody's that downgraded from AAA to whatever the one right below AAA is. You know, I, I always forget S and P uses you know AAA, AA. Moody's I think uses like double A, B one, I'm, you know, they're, they're just a different scale. I think the other thing too, it's important to remember is when you watch media outlets and they want to start to, to get eyeballs and they want to start to, to scare people on this there, people have to remember that the government takes in revenue. They're taking in tax revenue they're taking in revenue every day, you know, like when you buy an airline ticket and there's a fee on there and there's 28 different fees when you rent a car, some of them fed, some of them state, some of them, I don't even know where they go. Who, who knows? But there's, there's money flowing into the treasury and the U.S. Treasury can prioritize what they, what they write the checks to. So they could prioritize and they could say, you know, we're going to pay the interest payments on our, on our treasuries. And maybe we're not going to fund the billion dollar study of a, some rare spider. What happens to that spider if they watch uh, New York Mets highlights for 24 hours a day for two weeks? So maybe, maybe we don't fund that study. And I'm halfway joking about that, but uh, you could do a whole podcast on the ridiculous stuff that the U.S. government spends money on. The other, there was an Atlantic article uh, by John Carney back in 2011, Jay, I actually found it. And one of the things that he argues is, you know, the, the Treasury has a, a quote unquote checking account, I'll call it, that sits at the Fed. It's, it's where they, in theory, write their checks out of. I'm oversimplifying it. And it is noticeable that it's, it's down lower than it's been recently. But John Carney uh, made the point that it's never been tested, but why couldn't the the Treasury write a check and have overdraft protection at the Fed? And essentially, you know, let's say we wrote they wrote a five hundred billion dollar check, the Fed would just sell five hundred billion dollars worth of bonds in their their balance sheet, and the Treasury would sort of have an IOU to the Fed. So I mean, you, it would be bad if the, your your IRS refund check bounced, right? That'd be pretty. I think that bad. would be upsetting to some people. I think that would be. <laughs> but my point is, and you know, I mean, look, we, we could, I, there's other people, there's, there's economists who are really strong in this. I'm not the econ, I'm not an economist and I'm not, you know, um, 
I, I think we'd put a lot of people to sleep with the minutia on this. But the point is, like when you, I, in my opinion, when you hear hysterics on this, it, it's not as it seems always. Um, so, but yeah, I think it's something to keep an eye on, Jay. When it starts to matter, it'll matter. Well, we, I'm sure it'll, I'm sure it'll come up, and it'll be the, you know, the political hot potato for a little while, for sure. All right. The other thing I want to talk about is, is, is it getting serious? Question mark. The 10-3 yield curve inversion, Jay. This is where uh, the 10-year, three-month, we look at 10-year Treasury bond yield and the three-month Treasury bond yield, and you take the difference. And the reason why this is kind of important is it's uh, predicted kind of all the recessions. Um, so let, let me kind of set this up, Jay, and I want to get your thoughts on this. As of the, well, we don't have the close today, but I think as of yesterday, it was minus 1.65, which means that three-month treasury bills were yielding 1.65 above a 10-year treasury. So it's inverted. The short-end yields are higher than the long-end yields. And Cam Harvey is, uh, I don't know if he's he's an economist, if he calls himself an economist, but I know he, he teaches at Duke University. And Cam Harvey did a, a paper in the 80s. And when he wrote it, he basically said, you know, anytime we have this three-month, 10-year uh, inversion, a recession tends to come after that. And since he wrote the paper, I think there's been, you know, there were four before he wrote the paper, and then there were four after. So it's, it's sort of like eight for eight. And this goes back to 1968. I will say that I've talked to some people, you know, some friends of ours uh, who we respect their opinions. And, and uh, I said, is, is the steepness of the curve mean anything? And I don't think there's anything to say that how steep it is. But Jay, looking at the graph I sent you and looking at the steepness, meaning how much further front month or, or front three months is above the 10-year, it's getting really steep is, I mean, are we assured a recession because of this? Like what, what are we, what are we to make of this? I mean, the bond market is certainly bracing for that. And I think a lot of times the, the assumption here is that when you get a recession, the Fed will lower rates. And that's why the farther out bond has a lower yield than the near term bond. Right. I mean, that's the point. It's like, Hey, uh, bonds will not be paying five treasuries will not be paying 5% in three years from now, right. Or two years from now or 10 years from now. And that's why that inversion occurs. So look, do I think that the bond market is forecasting a recession? Well, I mean, I think a lot of people are, so fine. I'll say that, but really when I see this, Derek, I'm going to push back on you on this from two points is I think what it's really doing is saying rates will be lower in the future than where they are today. I don't necessarily mean, I think that has to come from a recession, right? The reason why that farther out bond yield is lower is because the bond market is projecting rates will be lower in the future. So I think the Fed could lower rates without there being a recession. Like, I think that's possible, right? Um, I don't think the Fed wants to keep rates as high as they are, for too long, uh, you know, the, 
the Fed has said they'd like to be at the what, two and a half, three and a half percent range. They think that's the right number for a two percent inflationary environment, which is their target. So what if inflation fixed itself, would they lower rates? Probably because they're trying to tie all those things together. So while the curve has preceded uh, uh, recessions, I think it's because the Fed has ended up lowering rates during recessions. By the way, what has the Fed told you? They're not going to lower rates, right? We're keeping rates higher for longer. Let's We'll see if reality is there. So I just think, Derek, I don't think it means recession is coming. I think in these scenarios, when you had this inversion of the three-month and the 10-year, that you got a recession after it. I'm going to tell you something. The recession of 2020 had very little to do with anybody predicting that that was going to occur. Right? I'm avoiding the the words associated with what happened in 2020. But look, nope, that was not in the cards. And it was a very quick recession. When I look at some of the other data points on here, like you barely got negative in, you know, 1989, right? And yes, then you had a recession in 1990. So like, yeah, okay, you're right. I feel like it's convenient data right now. And it, it may be true, you and I both said we might be in a recession right now, but I, I'm not sure that you have to say this is like a fail safe thing. I think the market is telling you rates are going to be lower in the future than where they are today. Then you can interpret what causes that. You know, Cam Harvey, and I, and I read some of his stuff. Uh, I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Uh, he actually put something out July of 2019. And in, in there, he sort of addressed, you know, hey, you know, do you really think there's going to be a recession again? The idea is that it, when he did his paper, he found that when when the curves were inverted, it tended to to show weakness. And he's actually said, even though it's eight for eight, it's possible that it's it's not right this time. Now, I I um I looked and I I looked at an interview that he did, and and he said. He's not sure it's going to be a really hard landing, but it doesn't mean we couldn't have a mild recession. Like he's actually saying that this time could be a little bit different. And, you know, but we look, you mentioned 1990, Jay, just because you have a recession doesn't mean that it has to be really bad. You know, 1990, July, 1990. Recession doesn't always mean terrible market either. Like Jay, what what happened? I know, you know, if we July ninety to March ninety one, if we look and we say, you know, what happened during that period? Like, how bad did the market actually get? I mean, if you look at uh, that period, the market was actually up, right, from uh, uh, up a few percent from start to finish. In the middle there, there was a a dip of what do we say, eighteen percent. But you know, from that period start to end that you just mentioned, there was actually a positive period in the S&P. It wasn't smooth. But it yeah, no, it wasn't smooth. But all right, so July 90, the S&P was 359. Isn't that crazy to think the S&P was only 359 points? Oh, it's three, 359. Yep, July. Yeah, it was 359. Yep. But it was July of 90 at the start of the recession, based upon the NBER committee, uh, S&P was 359. By March of 91, when they said it was over, it was 370 and change. That's up about 4%. And yeah, some point in that period, the market went down to 295, which is a negative 17.8% decline. 
I will say too, Jay, what's interesting, you know, you and I looked at a year out, so July of 89 to July 90. And I think we said the market was up 12% prior to that. So I don't know, like, like one school of thought says, yeah, we're inverted right now. And maybe it's not going to work this time. And maybe it doesn't work because everyone now is saying, oh, there it is. We're going to do a bunch of stuff because we know it's inverted. And nothing is right 100% of the time. But Jay, I, you and I are like a broken record on this. Like we, again, like we could be in a recession already. We could have already been in a recession. And seven months from now, the committee will tell us. And maybe the market decline was already reflective of that. Like who cares? Really? It's, it is what it is, you know, but um, yeah, not every recession has to be bad. Not every recession is like the, the 2008, 2009 one. So I don't know, but it is odd. What I will say is that, and it goes to Jamie Dimon's point, you know, he didn't say necessarily the inversion, but he talked about this idea of higher rates and what if they're higher for longer. Things do get a little weird when in theory, people having to pay out near uh, interest rates and they're owning or collecting further interest rates. So you have this, this sort of mismatch. In the 1994, the thing that broke was Orange County. Orange County was, I think, borrowing short and investing long and things got inverted and Orange County went bankrupt. And so, I don't know. I mean, like if it does happen this time, it doesn't mean it does. It has to be really bad, but it just really the steepness of this Jay though is striking. Yeah, no, it is. You're right. It's it's pretty dramatic. And look, if there's any one of these that I would you know say has the greatest level of accuracy when you look at the uh, uh, you, you look at these inversions, yeah, it's this one. It's the ten year and the three month is the one that I've always found to be most accurate. Even though I kind of pooed a minute ago, I mean. Derek, don't you feel like this is like the most telegraphed recession ever, right? I mean, can we not? I mean, there's nobody that's that is unaware that there's a possibility of this. Um, so, like, how is it going to catch you off guard? You know, like, what's going to? And I get something will break. There's something that's going to break, right? We 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 saw that in in March with uh, uh, SVB, right, and and some of the the the, the banks that had problems, but. Something else is going to go. I'm not saying there won't be that. I'm not saying there won't be turmoil. But, you know, the market doesn't seem to have a lot of fear of it, even though it's expecting that it's coming. You know, as we're sitting here recording this, you know, when I look at the volatility index, it's at the lowest level with a 17, you know, 0.07 uh, uh, closing value here on Friday. Uh, that It hasn't been that low for well over a year. So that's including, you know, everything that has been going on. We have the mo the lowest, you know, short term volatility prediction that we've had in a long time. So I don't know. Maybe it's all, you know, it's it's buy the rumors, sell the news kind of scenario, and maybe it's not so bad. Hard to hard to hard to round out these these sharp edges of some of this, you know, scary data that we're talking about. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, like the the market uh, closed today at forty one thirty seven, uh, which is why we were chuckling over the the fact that we're talking about a, an S and P at three fifty nine, and you know we're roughly the same as we were in February of of this year, and we're roughly the same as we were in August of twenty twenty two. 
So you could say, I mean, the market's sort of been, it's been volatile. Uh, it had the drawdown, you know, to, to 35, 77 in, in October of last year. But all right. The last thing on this, uh, this 10, three inversion is, uh, Tobias Carlisle, who's on the, uh, the value after hours podcast. One of the things that he pointed out was on the timing of recessions post uh, the 10-3 inversion. And according to what he was looking at, he said the recessions tend to start about seven months to 15 months after the, the yield curve inverts, the threes, tens, and the median is 12 months. This inverted in October on October 25th, of last year, so October 25th of 2022, which means seven months out from that would be May of this year. Uh, 15 months out would be January of, of 2024, so next year. And the median would be October of this year. What is it with October, by the way? October's an October interesting month. October stinks. Right? It's the worst <laughs> month. It actually isn't, on average, the lowest month. But when you get the really big sell-offs, they happen in October. That's just when it is. Beware of October. It is. We'll, we'll have to see what happens on uh, on this one for sure. But uh, yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, wouldn't you love for this not to be... I mean, obviously, you and I don't want a recession. We want the markets to go up. But it, it is interesting, you'd think. It'd be kind of interesting for something that everyone makes so predictive to be wrong, right? Uh, the market has a habit of proving the most people wrong. It's just the most, you know, it's just, it frustrates the most people. Not that the market is a, an intentional being, but it kind of feels that way sometimes. And when everybody thinks something, that's the almost guarantee that it's not going to happen. I don't know what else to tell you about that one. That's just you and I've seen that time and time again. I mean, I, I've you and I have talked about this before. Go back and use Google, but limit your search to a few months in different years and just put in the common predictions, you know, we're going to see recession, we're going to see crash and how many times people are wrong. If this was so easy, everyone would be just making money every year at, at rates that are so unbelievable. Doing macro, picking, trying to pick individual companies, trying to time stuff. It's really, really difficult. So all right, Jay, I was going to mention just real quick, um, and then I want to talk about a few of our recommendations. U.S. retail sales uh, disappointed this week, but I've been pointing out for a while, Jay, that U.S. real retail sales, so the amount of retail sales adjusted for inflation, it actually peaked in March of 21. Like, I don't know why no one's talking about this, but maybe I'm the only one who watches real retail sales. And that's okay if you tell me that. Um, but even the nominal numbers were lower on a year-over-year basis, lower than they've been since uh, sort of April or May of 2020. I mean, this is one of the things that the NBER, the National Bureau of Economic Research, looks at to declare recessions. I mean, this is telling me that we peaked in March of 21 on real retail sales. Uh, is this, do we make anything of this or just another data point? No, well, look, I, I do think you have been talking about this for a while. That is absolutely true. I will, I will, uh, I'll back you on that. Um, like, look, one of the things that the Fed is trying to do is slow down the spending of the consumer on a real basis, right? Adjusted. Uh, that is, that is happening already. Um, 
and I think the market is uh, is reacting like this. This this week we recorded this last week when you hear it. There was the retail sales numbers were a little disappointing, and the market didn't react well to that. So I think you I think you may start to see this as the first you know bad news is bad news uh, kind of a situation, right? We, we've been in this period where bad news is kind of good news because then it means oh the Fed is doing their job and they've impacted and they're going to stop, which eventually actually means good news. So bad news being good news has been around, but I think you know we're starting to see these. It's a little bit of a twist and turn where bad news is bad news. And that's what happened with retail sales numbers this past week. And uh, I, I, I don't think it's a rosy outlook uh, when it comes to, uh, to that. And you could say, you know, the consumer did kind of spike up quite a bit on their spending uh, in uh, 2021, but it has really leveled off. I don't think you're wrong. Now, I don't know how much of this is due to supply chain and availability of what they wanted to spend on. I think initially that had a lot to do with it. It was not that it was hard to spend your money, but you couldn't really go on trips, right? You were restricted because of, you know, what was going on uh, uh, in the environment or, or you couldn't buy something because it wasn't available. But now, you know, we're talking like two years later, March of 21 to March of 23, April of 23, sorry, even more than two years, um, you have to start to believe that it is definitely impacting behavior, that we are seeing less spending uh, in the retail space. No no doubt about it, Derek. And I think that ends up leading to, you know, a contracting, a con- contracting set of earnings. Not always great for the market. Charlie Bolello um, had a chart out. We're actually referencing a few of his charts this week, so good job by him this week. And he points out, and I think think it was him who made a comment or somebody else commented on his chart, we've actually had 24 consecutive months of negative real wage growth. In other words, adjusted for inflation. And I think somebody made the point, like, doesn't that give the Fed cover to still raise rates because they're like, oh, well, people are earning more, but it's still not outpacing inflation. I don't know. Uh, We'll see what happens with that. I know it's like it's an important point to talk about the earnings because that's the thing about inflation, right? Like the thought here is you don't want it to really get it. It's stickier, right? It's probably one of the stickiest things when it comes to inflation. Uh, and so you're right. It's good that it hasn't, um, you know, got to the point where uh, the Fed has to really clamp down on that. So I, you know, I don't know if it gives the Fed cover or not, Derek. But my two cents on this is they're still going up. Right. Wages are still going up and that will still be there once, you know, if and when we get inflation back down to the three, two and a half percent range, those wages will still be higher. Right. Which is part of the reason why things just in general uh, uh, remain inflation remains higher. I I'll, I'll the only last point. It's not even a good point, but I'll, I'll throw it in there anyway when it comes to this. Um, you know, there's a lot that goes on with workforce availability and a lot that goes on with job switching. And you've had. You've covered this in previous podcasts where um, you actually are incented to switch jobs more often right now in this environment, aren't you? Oh, yeah. I mean, the, I think the job switchers, their wage gains are much higher than the job stayers, right? Yeah. And so I think that that is even artificially pushing up. Maybe it's not artificial. It's a, it's a real number. Is pushing up that wage you know, number to be closer, right, for the, uh, uh, you know, the, to show the increase. But 
you know, I don't know. It's hard. There's so many different moving parts when it comes to wages. You just got to take them as they come. All right, Jay. Well, uh, let's let's talk about if we have anything that we think the audience should should be, uh, you know, any recommendations, Jay, uh, besides just, yep. I don't want to talk about, I don't want to give away anything about re, uh, succession, but like, if you're oh not watching God. that, you need to be watching mm-hmm. that. Yep. 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 Uh, okay. So I would say, you know, I'm a, the Mandalorian continues to be really good this year. Uh, so I'm, I'm definitely on that one, but I did see the air movie. Uh, oh, how was that? Uh, it was, it was pretty good. You know, listen, it was nice. It wasn't a two and a half hour movie. They got it done in under two hours, which is very nice. Uh, no, it was a good inspirational business story. Uh, for those of you that don't know what it's about, it's the story of uh, uh, how Nike got Michael Jordan to be the uh, to be there. Actually, they were, he's an employee, right? They, that's that he got paid to wear the shoes as a, an employee, I believe, of Nike. And so, yeah, it's the story when I didn't realize this, but Michael Jordan absolutely did not want to sign with Nike at all, no matter what. And it's a great story of uh, um, how the Nike team was able to change that dynamic. And then what a huge impact that shoe has had for all athletes going forward on the way that athletes create, uh, uh, create do, do deals. So it was, yeah, it was good. It was good. I mean, we, we wore Air Jordans, like uh, when I played high school basketball and we'd all have the same shoes and, you know, we didn't get them for free, but you'd sort of order them and then you'd, you know, you'd want the the colors of, of the school. And I remember wearing those. I mean, that's what everybody wore back then. And there's yeah. people collect them, which I wish I would have kept my used ones. I could probably have sold them. You know, who, who knew back then? you then? wouldn't you have them. Tossed them, you know? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah. so. Yep. Sonny Vaccaro is really inter- an interesting character. I, um, I know, the, you know, sort of the movie's about, I'm familiar with that story. But Sonny Vaccaro, I think, was the guy who, for schools, like he would go and get certain schools to, to use, um, you know, Adidas or Nike and stuff like that. So, kind of an interesting character. That's, yeah, a, that's lot a, of whole, it, a lot of information and, and the influence that he had on the industry uh, in, the, in the movie. Yep. Absolutely. Yep. He's the main character. All right. So, I, I kind of have an odd recommendation, but I think people, if they have not watched baseball in a while, they should check it out. Have you watched any games, Jay, with the pitch clock? It's awesome. I have not. It, wait, you're saying it's awesome? I'm saying the pitch clock is awesome. Okay. You know what the pitch clock is. So I do this know what year, the pitch clock is. Yes. Yeah, I love it. I mean, it's because when we watch, you know, late 70s, early 80s, it's like, you know, you're watching Ron Guidry pitch at Yankee Stadium and he pitches, throws a pitch, the catcher catches it, throws it back, and Guidry takes a sign, throws it in again. And started to get where there were 30 seconds, 40 seconds, two minutes sometimes in between pitches. And it was just ridiculous. So this pitch clock, the deal is it's uh, once a pitcher delivers a pitch with nobody on base, catcher throws it back, pitcher catches it. You get 20 seconds before, you know, to throw the next pitch. And if you don't do it, an automatic ball is, is counted. And the batter also has to be in the box and ready with at least eight seconds left on the pitch clock. So if you haven't watched baseball in a while, I know you're not the biggest baseball fan. It's, it's so much better to watch. I think it's really good. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll find a game to watch. Don't you have the Marlins down there? The Marlins are your team, right? Are they? In Miami, <laughs> yeah. right? 
I'm yes, I'm kidding. Yes, yes, yes. I'm trying to insinuate how little I watch baseball. Yeah. The problem with baseball still remains from the steroid era, all the records that got quote unquote jacked up. Like for the, you know, baseball was about numbers, about statistics. And I think, I don't know how you ever get back from that because some of those records don't mean anything. Um, but anyway. Yeah, my my problem is only like it's hard to commit to to uh, to a sport that's got like 160 games, right? It's a lot. Like football's mm-hmm. nice. I got 17 games and maybe some playoffs, and then good. But hard to commit to following all that action that happens uh, throughout the week on baseball. I think that's it's always been my challenge to it. I mean, the market has 251 trading days, more and than, I am absolutely more than 162. That. that that takes up all my capacity, my friend. There you go. All right, everyone. Well, thanks for uh, thanks for coming on again, Jay. Appreciate it. Yep. And uh, for everyone else, we'll talk to you next week. See you, everyone.